Welcome to the Sober Town Podcast. Let's jump on that train and ride. Ride into the wonderful, beautiful, sometimes a bit messy, but always amazing world of sobriety. I'm your guest host, Elaine Schuyler Neal, and I'm jumping in today for our dear friend and Sober Town host, Drifter, who is hopefully getting a few hours of much needed extra sleep. Seriously, you guys, Drifter is a machine. I have no idea how he does everything that he does. Someone needs to put that guy in like a sleep deprivation tank and run some tests. We might just be able to create a whole new series of sober superhuman. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a content creator, ex-photojournalist, website guru, and probably most importantly, fellow person in recovery. I also created the SoberTownPodcast.com website, where you can find some really cool tips, resources, personal stories, inspiration, more podcast episodes, and I'm coming up on 18, or 18, oh my God, I'm jumping ahead of myself, eight months, alcohol-free, and I couldn't be happier with my decision to leave that life behind. So today, I'm super excited to be speaking with, with, um, Actually, are we introducing you as you? I'm this Mrs. on the app. Okay. My name is Sarah in real life. Okay, great. And I didn't want to go ahead and yeah. say your name without checking first. But um, yeah, go ahead and talk and just uh, feel free to introduce yourself, Sarah, however you'd like to. Cool. So I'm this Mrs. on the app with a little spider icon. Um, my name is Sarah in real life. Um, I have been sober now 350 days. I'm coming up on my one-year mark, and it's so exciting. And it's such an honor to be on this podcast among all of you and to just know these, know you all as a member of this community. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, little starstruck, little fangirled out to be here today. So thank you for having me. No, no, it's totally cool. Uh, it's been so great knowing everybody on here and meeting people. That's like one of the things, right? You get to like meet people from all over the world. I've never had so many friends across the globe as I do now. And it's just so heartwarming and awesome. Totally, totally. And it's, it's extra special because we are walking this very unique path that really only we know. And, you know, these people are complete strangers from across the globe. And we are sharing this experience that is so deeply personal. And we share it. And we're vulnerable with each other. And um, that's what creates a community. And it's just so neat to know everybody. And I kind of have this little secret bucket list to visit everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get my daughter's passport stamped up. So yes, right. you'll be seeing me. I won't be that anonymous anymore to you across well, the pond. And we can visit one another because we live. I've, that's what I was going to start to say. We're both Coloradans, Coloradoans. I don't know how you say it. Mm -hmm. You're from Colorado. How do I say it? They say Coloradans. Okay, good. I haven't really like, used do that do I word. add that superfluous O? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's such a... But yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting up. Totally. A thousand so, percent. 
Yeah, right. I got to go to the mountains more. I do do a fair amount of mountain trekking myself. I'm actually training to climb my first 14 year this summer, and I'm going to climb a 4,000 foot mountain in New England, Mount Washington. So that That's is awesome. one coolness that sobriety has given me. Um, and I can't wait to hear about yours as well. You so seriously you, need to come out and visit me. You seriously do. It's like I have this world class trail at the bottom of my driveway. It's wow. <laughs> Consider I'm, it I'm super lucky. <laughs> super know. lucky. So yeah. Especially because we both work for ourselves, right? So our schedules is kind of like open. Um, yep. Totally. So if you would, maybe give us a little bit of background about, um, you know, what sort of motivated you to get sober to begin with and, you know, yeah. start the ball rolling that way. Okay, cool. So um, I'm going to begin at the end. I, yeah. I, uh, maybe if, if somebody thinks that my voice is annoying or something, at least they can be like, sweet, got the, came, got what I came for. They can just get, get the meat of it right out of the way. And Zero people um, hopefully that'll make that. for interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody so will think I, that, but yes. The end's uh, the juicy part though. Everybody wants to hear how bad it got, right? Uh, oh, I know. Oh, I don't, I don't, you love that. And, uh, sometimes I feel, I sense, but I do love it that kind of that like pissing contest of just how bad you were. And I just love that because I, I used to be a Catholic school teacher. And so I am a very good girl, but I just, I just love the bad, bad, edgy, dark. I love, I love that whole part of sobriety because we are the hardest core and um, I just love it. So, okay. I'm going to begin at the end. <clears throat> I got sober as a possible solution to my postpartum depression. Um, I had a baby at 39. It's been done. <laughs> uh, it's definitely it, been done. <laughs> it's been done, but uh, I did it and it was hard. So we had a, basically a six-year-old at the time and then um, we had a baby. And I quickly found myself at the bottom of a well. I was so alone. I was so disconnected in my marriage um, and from myself. I was overwhelmed and um, I was, I, I mean, I, it, was, it was the bottom for me. I was taking good care of the baby. I knew how to take care of a baby because I had a six-year-old and um, she was the sun, moon, and stars. Everything was perfect. I did the puppet shows and the Play-Doh and the walks and all of it. But this one, it was just different. Um, I, I was just that mother that um, had a vacant face all the time. I was changing her. I was putting her down for naps. I was feeding her but I just, I was dead faced all day long. And I never really got that instant bond with the baby. I never really um, had that like love burst that they say um, where you just really connect with the baby. So I, I mean, it was like, it was like, there was one day that I was taking, I was walking down the, the through the yard to take the compost out and I saw the rain barrel and I was like having visions of like the baby in the rain barrel, you oh, know, and I'm changing the baby's yeah. diaper and I open a new bag of diapers and I have a vision of the bag over the baby's 
face. Like, and it's stuff that is really, it's, it's insane to say out loud, Mm -hmm. but it was, that was what my head, my head was just full. It was just this dark place. And I was just so lost. I was so overwhelmed. Um, and so, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I don't think people realize unless they've been on this journey, how dark your thoughts can get. And that is mental health is one of the things that I think we kind of tend to forget uh, really can be a factor in drinking. Oh, for sure. For sure. And um, sobriety wasn't always, I mean, my drinking was something that, um, yeah, I drank every day. I mean, I drank wine at night, you know, the pediatrician recommended me to drink wine, you know, like it's, it's so normal. So, um, I was at the bottom of a well. I called the pediatrician one day to ask her about the baby's immunization record and if I could take her on a plane ride, how old she was and stuff like that. And I just couldn't stop crying. Like I, I, lived this life where I would open my mouth to speak and sobs would come out. I couldn't wear makeup (laughs) because I was crying so much all day. Um, I was also in a house. I live in my husband's parents' house. So this is sort of tangential. (laughs) I'm going to like put a pin in where we were here. I love here. We are. (laughs) Yeah. So we're at the bottom of a well. Let's put a pin in that, okay? Just before we tumbled to the bottom of the well, um, my husband's mother passed away in 2018. She, I'm going to try to keep this as like succinct as I can. And if you have comments, questions, or concerns, feel free to ask me about it because I think it's a huge subject. Um, She had a, she was diagnosed with ALS, Mm -hmm. Lou Gehrig's disease, um, Stephen Hawking. Okay. She was a potter. She used her hands. She was an artist. And, um, in, uh, whatever she decided one day she realized she couldn't button her shirt. And we said, Oh mom, you're fine. You know, how do you want your eggs? And then it quickly progressed and she got the ALS diagnosis. Okay. She went within six months from not being able to button her shirt to being in a wheelchair couldn't move her body. Your the ALS is you are trapped in a body you cannot control. Right. Um, but your mind is sharp. She couldn't. Um, it got to the point where she was having trouble. It's a muscular thing. Starts in your spinal cord. She couldn't swallow, and she was having trouble breathing. So like that muscular that diaphragm thing. So in the state of Colorado, it's called Prop 106. It is legal for to end your own life with dignity. It's called the death with dignity pill. Prop 106. So in 2018. We moved into this house to help her die. Wow. We live with my husband's father. He's 80 years old, but he's like out mountain biking. He's like that kind of age. He's one of those Coloradans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's <laughs> like out. me on the trail when I'm like out of breath. He's like running it up there. Oh God. Yeah. Those people. That's him. That's him. <laughs> so we move into the house to help him take care of her. And all the while we know that she's applying to the state. You have to apply to the state for this death with dignity pill. And let me be clear, it's not a pill. It's a hundred pills. It's a hundred grams of, um, 
what is it? I, I want to say second all, but I'm not sure. It's a barbiturate. It's a tranquilizer. Everyone gets 100 grams regardless of age, gender, weight. Um, it's a tranquilizer. In order to do it, this is the stuff. If you have questions about it, seriously, you can totally contact me because it, it's a huge deal. Anyway, um, she had to apply. She had to have a doctor write her a diagnosis to say that she was eligible for it. Because you can't just like be having a shitty day, right? And then you have to have a psychiatric evaluation. And then you have to have a second doctor write you um, a prognosis that says, yeah, this person has the right to end their life with dignity because her road was, it was going to be a diaper, a ventilator and a feeding tube on and on and on. Yeah. It's more about and, ending their suffering. Right. I mean, yeah, they're not. Yeah. She couldn't eat. She couldn't swallow and she couldn't breathe. And she was like, fuck this. I mean, from the moment she couldn't use her hands cause she's, she's an artist. And so from the moment she couldn't use her hands, she was like, fuck this. So, so boom, that's that in a neat, clean little bow, death with dignity. Boom. We move into the house you know, she dies. It was actually really beautiful. It was so brave. It was amazing. She had to have a fucking funeral for herself. She, we had to make appointments for her friends to come up and visit her and say goodbye. Wow. Cause she was, you know, gonna end her life with Take dignity on yeah. this day at this time. Insane, insane. So we move into this house. It's a huge house. There are six bedrooms in this house. Mm. She was a neat Nick. So I move into this house. I'm pregnant. I have my husband, my six-year-old, myself, a baby on the way, and the 80-year-old dad, okay, down the hall. And I am the mom. <laughs> I'm there to make sure there's a hot meal on the table. Those guys change the oil in the cars. I make sure there's a hot meal on the table every night. So this is one of the parts in the giant cog of me being at the bottom of a well is I was so overwhelmed. This house was huge and it was expected to be immaculately clean. It wasn't really mine. They kept saying it was mine. You know, everyone kept saying, this is your house, move in, make it yours, you know, but it's like, uh, there's like museum grade art in this house, you know? I and I have a six-year-old who's like, Already spilt paint on the Amish shaker furniture. As she carved do. her name <laughs> into the windowsill. I mean, it's just this thing. And so I was, I was like trying to control everything and keep everything perfect. So boom, here comes the baby. Perfect recipe. Postpartum depression. I'm at the bottom of a well. Call the pediatrician. So fast forward. I got this little tiny baby sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. Dead face mother. Called the pediatrician to ask her about the immunization and taking her on an airplane. And the pediatrician goes, is, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's totally fine. This is a normal day. I'm just crying. That's all. I just <laughs> had a baby day. and I'm crying. Like, I just cry all the time. It's fine. It's part of it, right? And she's like, can you, can you hold on a second? So I hold. She comes back. She goes, okay, uh, I've just been on the phone with the behavioral therapist over at the Women's Health Office. And she has a spot. She's really looking forward to meeting you today. At three o'clock, do you have someone who can drive you to her office this afternoon? Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay. So my mom was there. Luckily, my mom drives me. So the postpartum depression, they, um, what's the thing? They give you the um, prognosis, you know, 
diagnosed. They diagnosed me. They gave me a bottle of pills to eat. They tell me to go on walks, you know, take care of myself. And so I'm doing that. I'm doing that. And I didn't want to, you know, I was, I'm still trying to get that t-shirt that says I never had to take pills, you know, but I'm done with that now. Mental health is, I learned and grew so much about mental health and it's not a weakness. It, it's not, it's, you know, they give you this bottle of pills and she said, she goes, this is a wagon. This is not a weakness. Okay. This is basically a little wagon for you to carry around your problems. And eventually you're going to unpack the wagon and you're going to give it back. But right now it will give you much more control of the situation. That's and great so, though. Cause there yeah, is so and much I was shame like, okay, and stigma it. associated with it, especially if you're already got, you know, the burden of alcohol weighing you down and com- complicating everything, you know? Yeah. Well, and th- at this point, like alcohol is kind of my, still my best friend, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was afraid that it would change me. You know, I was, I didn't know. So I take the pills, I take the pills, but I'm still, I'm still feeling disconnected in my marriage and disconnected from myself. And I did all the things I was seeing a therapist weekly. You know, I was able to start smiling at the baby and, uh, continue to be perfect around the house, but I was still really disconnected. And we, she finally said, maybe you should see a marriage therapist because my husband, he didn't know how to help me. Yeah. He didn't, and he didn't know how it wasn't. I think he thought that like, you know, I was breastfeeding. And so he couldn't help the baby either. And the baby mm-hmm. was kind of overwhelming. I think they're scary for men at, at that age. And so he didn't really know how to help me. And so I think he was staying at work later because it was a lot less stressful there. And, um, meanwhile, I'm like standing at the kitchen sink, like waiting for him to come down the driveway. So I could just have like five minutes, some connection, yeah. some companionship. Oh. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't even need to be away from the baby. Cause I, mm. I knew what it took to take care of a baby. I know it takes everything you've got, but I just needed someone to take care of me. Like, this is what I don't think anybody knows is that like new mothers need to be mothered. They need someone to say, like, let me fill up your water for you, your water by the bed. How much water have you been drinking? And they need someone to say, do you want me to cut that for you? Because you only have one hand right now. Like, and I don't, I I just don't think that like, I don't know, the society or whatever really sees that, that like mothers, new mothers need to be mothered. And I just needed someone to take care of me. Cause I was so busy taking care of everyone else. So. I know. Fast forward. Like, yeah, go ahead. It's so hard. So fast forward, like about a year of this. Okay. Wow. And I'm fighting with my husband. We kind of started marriage therapy, you know, and the cool thing about this is the marriage therapist is actually an addiction counselor. Oh, but two for one, one, Uh, But one day a week, he, his side hustle is marriage and family counseling. And I don't Mm. know if you can really call it a side hustle if you have like a master's degree, but (laughs) (laughs) that was his side hustle. So he, um, he was kind of just counseling us on the emotional house of our marriage, you know, and connection and compassion and empathy and stuff. 
And he was awesome. He was just that, that little spark in the dark of sobriety that I think, you know, we all, when you just start to see the light, that little crack in the door, that's kind of what he was. He just, he didn't talk about alcohol or addiction or anything, but sometimes he did, but it wasn't, you know, pushy. It was like, whatever. So here's, here's when it all came to the end. My husband and I had a bottle of wine with dinner. We got in a stupid fight about nothing. And um, it was June 16th. And the next morning I was like, fuck this. Okay. Because I've been working so hard to have a connection with my husband and mostly a connection with myself and to be able to have like that solid ground to stand on to be like, uh, actually no, or whatever to, you know, him, whatever we're arguing about, you know, just to just be able to go, uh, I don't think that's right. Or I don't appreciate the way you talk to me like that. Or "Mm, how about you just whatever, whatever. So Mm -hmm. I decided to say, you know what, I'm going to leave you in the dust and I'm going to, um, just be the one who sees things clearly, who is calm and non-reactive. I'm leaving all this disconnection in the dust and I'm going to put me first. And so that was when I woke up in the morning, I poured myself a cup of a cup of coffee. I looked for an app. I found this app, took a picture of myself. The picture's terrible. I love it. I fucking love it. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I love it. The first and day I pictures said, are awesome. <laughs> oh, so glad I did it. Um, and I'm like, I'm going to quit drinking. And I never really decided like how long or how far this would go. But I definitely, it was like my solution to the disconnection in my marriage and the disconnection with myself. To where just the chaos and the overwhelm in my life was like at the wheel. And I wasn't really at the wheel. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that's kind of the end. That's the beginning. That's my first chapter. Okay, so let me move. To, so wait, let me, um, let's, uh, real quick before we go, because I have actually a couple of really quick questions about that, but I think okay, we'll cool. take a quick pause. And right. so that Drifter can slice it up and we'll come right back. Cool, and we're back. And so I was going to ask, um, so were you really like inebriated that last night or was it more about the emotional kind of thing? It wasn't about like uh, physically this booze is taking me down necessarily. It was more about all the compounding factors. And so it wasn't like some people have that last supper moment where it kind of like triggers them. They get so blitzed, right? They do something ridiculous. And the next day they're like, I'm done. This was like a slow build kind of it sounds like to this decision is that yeah it was it was um we had had a bottle of wine between the two of us right I used to do one on my own or two exactly exactly and so it wasn't it was like I just woke up thinking I wonder if I hadn't had those two glasses of wine if we would have still had that fight yeah. I don't even know what it was, but I know it was something really stupid. And even in the moment while we were fighting, I was like, this is so stupid. And then the next morning I was like, this is so stupid. And I bet, I wonder if I hadn't a drink and I hadn't have drunk that bottle of wine or that two glasses, we would have had this argument. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of like, I mean, I had been taking pills and going to therapy for a year and yeah. I still didn't really feel that much better. 
I, I was like coming to grips with stuff and figuring it out, you know, like the system of doing the house and, you know, the baby, they get a little easier, they get a little harder, they get a little easier, you know, and like that, For but sure. I never really was felt, felt that connection to myself and the connection to my marriage. I never really felt like I was in the driver's seat. And so I just was like, it was just this thing that I thought, well, how about this? How about this? And so, um, I'm going to go into like what kind of drinker I was. Yeah. So I grew up in a family that was a very festive celebratory family. Okay. Mm -hmm. My mom, my mother's birthday is January 1st. Okay. So just huge, just, you know, party, 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 just fun celebration, sparkles, just all that. My father um, was the mayor of the town that I grew up in. Like feels like almost my whole childhood. He like did two terms and then like 10 years passed and I think the town like approached him like what we need now is someone who knew this town 10 years ago to bring up. And so my dad was just like always the mayor of the town. And so we lived downtown and there was just always people. And, you know, my dad was like, he's a vocalist and my brother's a vocalist. And so um, there was always these like events, you know, and my dad's like, singing for the Memorial Day celebration or he's part he's doing this um fundraiser skit for the animal shelter so he Just, was like a figure always... like a personality yes. yeah oh yeah, a thousand percent totally totally and and um so it was just always there was always like parties and we had a costume box you know and there was funny hats at the New Year's party and there was always a big New Year's party because it was my mom's birthday so it was like kind of everybody in the town, it felt like, you know, because my dad's the mayor. Um, and then, you know, it's like St. Patrick's Day. It's like my mom is also a chef. Okay. And so she's really festive and like very culinary. And so it's like she, she, she'd do all these, you know, elaborate gourmet foods. And it was like the St. Patrick's Day party, you know, and there's stout and there's whiskey, you know, and then mm-hmm. on on and on, you know, and it's like Cinco de Mayo and doing the thing. Yes. Yes. And so I just always grew up in a family where it was just like fun and parties and we'd go camping and my, you know, my parents had these friends from Italy and they drink this super fancy high-end cognac and stuff like that. And it was just, there was always drinking in my life. It was just always this thing. And, you know, when I was in eighth grade, my grandmother let me have a glass of wine on Sunday night at dinner. And then in high school, you know, drinking was cool. We'd go out into the country and go camping and we'd drink and run from the cops. And then I went to college, (laughs) I went to a big university and the drinking culture, it's, it seemed really normal. Yeah. I mean, you always had that, like, drinking is fun. There's no negative connotation as you're growing up. It's all positive. It's all fun. This totally. Is how we do it, you know, which can be tricky, you know, it really can. It totally informs this whole side of how we perceive it. A thousand percent. It totally informs the side of how we perceive it. That's exactly right. And we just, it's just so interwoven into the fabric of 
what we know of, you know, a social life. Mm -hmm. And so I went to this huge college and we partied and then after college, like I was a bartender and that was like so cool, so hip, like so fancy, you know, and it's sort of, you're like, oh, Tawaka is $6 a shot. Like you start to get this like hierarchy of like fancy drinks, yeah. you know? And, and all your friends just, love you because you actually know how to make a decent drink. <laughs> totally, totally. And so then um, I meet my husband and my husband is a brewmaster. Oh, cool. My husband makes beer for a living. And I didn't even think about where beer came from until I met him. <laughs> does he still do uh, it? He does. Oh, wow. He does. It's, and it, you know, it's a crazy thing in my path of sobriety right now to see it because I read, you know, This Naked Mind and um, what's the one drink by Anne? Oh, dry or I don't know. There's so mm. many. I know. And Dowsett Johnson, I want to say. So and I see alcohol for what it is. It's poison. And it doesn't really do anyone any good. I've never seen anyone drink themselves rich, happy, successful, beautiful, ever. I okay. saw that. You wrote that on our app. And I thought that was the coolest thing that you said. I really, I actually wrote it down and was going to address it if you didn't bring it up. That's awesome. It really That's was. Awesome. I've never heard that, but it is absolutely true. Sorry. Right. Because we get sold it. They sell it to us as that, that you're exotic and adventurous and beautiful and, um, you know, successful and swanky and high end. And it's like, actually, it's not really that different from that guy on the side of the road with the paper bag, you know, it's. Well, and then you've got like the double whammy of your whole life having this perceived notion that it's completely fine. It's even part of, of, of a happy life. And then to kind of crack that open and change that gets to be kind of problematic because it requires a completely different shift in perspective. Oh yeah. Seems. Yeah. We're, yeah. That's, that, that's a huge one. We're going to get to that. That's, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. So I meet my husband. Mm -hmm. He's, he's a brewmaster and making beer truly is, I've seen it for the last 15 years. 16 actually it's it's a craft and it takes art and it takes love and it's science and um it's actually really beautiful once you learn about what it takes to actually get it right and yeah. um he's been doing it i think he got a brewing kit when he was 16 you know and he's he's cool he's like a leader in his industry and it's really neat to watch but for me like I just, I loved drinking. Okay. I love getting drunk. I love the taste of beer. I was like, I was getting my, what's called a Cicerone certificate, which is basically like a sommelier for beer. I have oh, a level that's one. Oh, so Cicerone. cool. Yeah. Which yeah. requires and, a really sophisticated palate actually to be able to pick yeah. up on the notes. Totally. Totally. It, it's it, the, all of it. It's insane. But, um, you know, I love the boutique. He worked kind of at a boutique brewery in California that like, I kind of, they, to me, they put the $10 six pack like on the market, like $10 for a six pack of beer was kind of unheard of until like uh, 2007 when these guys, it's called Firestone Walker. It's in California and it's the lion and the bear. And, um, 
he worked for them and they were this like boutique, like high fashion brewery. Okay. And they would put out a beer, a special beer, and there'd be a limited edition and there'd be people at 6am lined up around the block to get it. And so again, here we are with that culture of drinking that is so it's, it's this like pinnacle of, I mean, it's like fashion. It's a lot like fashion. Okay. And so I have my, I have this husband. And so I, here's, here's me as a drinker. I love to drink. I love it. And I like, I like the IPAs because they're like, they have like 8% alcohol. You know what I mean? Like I'm like a Bud Light or whatever is like four. (laughs) Okay. I like wine. I like cocktails. I can think of a cocktail or a drink for every occasion. I, um, I listened to our girl, Leslie, no more whining her podcast. And I love it. She put it so well. She goes, you know, people talk about moderation a lot on here. And she's like, that doesn't really, that doesn't get me because I don't fantasize about having one drink. Yeah. I want to get hammered. Yeah. One drink doesn't. And so that was me. I was like, I, I mean, I would go to like people's parties, like women I knew from teaching or whatever, and they'd be having, you know, how they do like in their homes, like Tupperware party, but it's like for jewelry. Yeah. Something stupid like that. But I would fucking go. I've seen one of those. (laughs) Yeah. I would go to those parties because I knew there'd be wine there. I drank every night. I probably drank three or four drinks a night. I always had wine. Every meal I cooked had some cool drink or cocktail to go with it. Cajun night. We would do it up, you know? Yep. Oh, we're having Mexican night. Let's do, oh my gosh, it's, it's Friday. Let's do margaritas tonight. And I would do it up. I'd buy the limes and all that. And so I was that kind of drinker where drinking was totally woven into the normalcy of my life. And I, I loved drinking and yeah. I, I loved it. I was the life of the party. I was that girl, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, knew that I needed, I knew that it was probably a problem because you kind of start thinking about, I was that one who would think about when's five o'clock. I would mm-hmm. think, Oh, I bet I have to wait for my husband to get home. I can't start drinking before he gets home from work when I'm here with the kids. I can't do that. But I thought about it always. And then I was the one who would drink at dinner and then, um, you know, drink while cooking dinner, drink during dinner, and then put the kids to bed and wake up at two thirty in the morning and think, oh shit, did I put the baby in her pajamas or did I put her to bed just in the clothes <laughs> she was wearing all day? Did I clean up the kitchen or did it, is it just still like whatever it was from after dinner last night? Mm-hmm. Did I read, did I read to my daughter? Did I read her a book or did I just put her to bed at two thirty? And you, and then, and then comes in like, I drank too much. And you tell yeah. how much you drink. You do all these math problems. About how and much then you when you can't, when you start to not be able to, you can only remember till a certain part and it starts to get fuzzy. You're like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I could usually remember, uh, but you know, like my neighbor would be over for dinner. I'm like, what time did she leave? Yeah. You know? And, and so I would count up how many drinks I had. And then I'd lay there in bed thinking that's too many. How many is that for the week? Oh my God. That's so bad. Um, I need to quit drinking. I should quit. I should cut back. I got to. And then 
you try to fall back to sleep all the while, like shaming yourself for being a bad mom and all that. And then you wake up in the morning and um, you feel like shit. I was, I was actually that special kind of drinker that didn't get hangovers. I can probably count oh, on wow. one hand how many times I was hungover. And maybe, maybe I did get hungover, but I was just so used to it. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely one of the things that I noticed after a while. When I would start to get sober, I was I would be like, "Oh wow, I've just been shitty, feeling shitty all this time." Like I'd it'd be I'd have to drink a truckload or on an empty stomach or some combination of vodka, then going back to wine or some silly thing to actually feel brutal the next day. Usually, I could maintain. Did you feel yeah. like kind of like you were maintaining and you were functioning and everything was cool? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really get like headaches. I wasn't like throwing up. I mean, I was probably dragging. I wasn't nearly as like bright and coherent as I am now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like I could get up. I mean, in like the, my other life, like I could drink a bottle of wine and teach first grade at seven 30 in the morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and not be like that sluggy teacher. Like I just, my mom has it. People always say like, I want some of what you're on. Cause I always have had like just this like burst of good energy. I've always just been able to like, just kind of yeah. be on my toes. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So that's kind of what kind of drinker I was. Um, so we're going to put a pin in that and we're going to take a little tiny sidestep now. Mm-hmm. In 2016, I found my father dead. My father drank himself to death. We all kind of knew it was coming. I think it was, you know, you know how these things are. They, they, what is the book where she, she lines it all out. It blew my mind where it's like, you're a phase one drinker for about 10 or 15 years. And then you're a phase two drinker for about five years. And then you're a phase three drinker for about two. And you're a phase four drinker for about six months because it kills you. It kills you. So my family was always drinkers, right? Always. My dad was a drinker. My mom was a drinker. Um, and it just got bad and it started to be a problem in their marriage. And um, so my dad's drinking got so bad that my mom, they owned another house. She kind of moved to that other house. And um, I was kind of left to sort of like take care of my dad kind of that summer because she was sort of gone, you know, how it is. They need someone Mm -hmm. to, um, and I had a small, my daughter was like three that summer. And so I would go over there as much as I could. I'd have somebody watch my daughter because I didn't want anybody to see my dad that way. You know, he was like having, he was like having a drink when he woke up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, he had chronic pain. He, he had contracted polio from a polio vaccine in the fifties. And so all of our lives, he always kind of had this like crippled left side. And I think the worst thing about, I think there was physical pain. I do obviously, but I think the very worst thing about it was that there was shame that he like, wasn't physically like he couldn't like do certain sports when I was in like fifth grade, he had to quit playing the guitar, which really broke his heart because he couldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I honestly, I do think that that's like at the root of his drinking, what his drinking was, you know? And so he was drinking. It was bad. He got sober. He got sober for six weeks. 
I was like, dad, you have to do this. And that summer he got sober. I was there, I was bringing him soup. And then he just was still in pain. And his, his spinal cord was sort of like collapsing in his spinal column was Mm -hmm. collapsing in on his spinal cord and he was in such pain and he kind of quit drinking. And then he was just like, what's the fucking point? Like I'm going to die anyway. And then just a few weeks later, I went over there to check on him and I found him dead. Was it so, alcohol related? The, did he start up again then to he started up. pain? Got you. I think he did, but I think his body just broke down. And, you know, yeah. on the death certificate, it says uh, complications due to alcoholism because they told me that, you know, they cut into him and they found that fatty, fatty layer around the um, liver, which is the liver's way of trying to protect itself from being constantly inundated with toxins. But I don't really know what it was that caused him to take his last breath. Do you know what I mean? Like he was yeah. probably like dehydrated or, yeah, or some other, you know what I mean? Organ like physically, failure or something. Yeah. yeah. But so that was 2016. And I knew that the cards were stacked against me. Yeah. That's I tough. knew it. And so I kind of had this inkling in my mind, like, it's something that's going to creep up on me. You know, it's, it's waiting behind the door. It's not something I'm not going to make it out of it. You know, drinking the way I do, I'm not going to end up any different than he is. Mm -hmm. And so I have this aunt, she's 15 years sober. She's AA. She's amazing. I have an uncle, both on my mom's side, brother and sister, my mom's brother and sister. He's like probably 20 years sober. And they've always just been this gentle, gorgeous, guiding light, never pushy, never anything. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're amazing. So they came out to help me like put together all the pieces with my dad. You know, obviously my mom was there. Um, The town threw this memorial ceremony for him. It was gorgeous. I mean, there was this giant flag draped across the main street. It was, I mean, there was, there must've been a thousand people there. It was so beautiful to honor, you know, who he had been. So, um, so do you feel like that? I mean, that sounds like it was a pretty profound wake up call on some level or no. Girl, I don't think it was. No, because you could see still the differences in in his drinking and how it escalated. And maybe, you know, you weren't drinking in the morning. There were so many things that you weren't doing that he was doing. Plus, he was older. Plus, he had all the complications. So, you know, it's easy to yeah. to have that. Even that distance might be enough to say, well, that's not going to happen to me because of X, Y, Z and kind of kind of like now looking at it now it's such a wake-up call Mm -hmm. um and I have written a letter to my brother that maybe we'll have time I'd love to share it and have it um memorialized on this podcast because I feel like it's an open letter to any drinker I totally Um, know what you're talking about and I actually wrote part of it down (laughs) you're amazing girl you are a good journalist you do all your homework you get a gold star by your name drifter told me a little bit about uh, your brother or some of the um, things you were trying to do for your brother. And so I happened to come across that letter that you posted on there, but yeah, we can get to that. But, oh. um, but you don't so think, like, no, it wasn't really 
it was more of a wake up call later as you started putting pieces together. I think together, maybe. now, looking at it now, I'm like, holy shit, it still kind of blows my hair back the whole, the whole, the way it all went down. But I was just like, I think that you, I was like still just thinking alcohol was this fun thing that I really couldn't imagine my life without. Yeah. And absolutely. I had, and here's the other thing though, is I have tried to quit drinking and I've written this on the, on the app there is I've heard celebrities say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. Mm. <laughs> and That's when great. You, <laughs> and it, it just totally, it hits me because I jumped on this app on June 17th after a bottle of wine and an argument with my husband. And I took a shitty picture of myself and I said, this is it. And, um, I'm 351 days sober. Okay. But That's make great. no mistake, make no mistake. I have been trying to quit drinking for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, trying yeah. and, and failing, you know, whatever. I know it's like when you have a reset, it's not failing, but it's like, I haven't been able to actually quit, quit because the, those societal messages mm -hmm. get to you. And you're not that bad. You're not drinking in the morning. You're yeah. a good mom. You still mm -hmm. put a hot meal on the table. I deserve this. I work hard. All the stuff, right? Totally. So, yeah. And totally. I relate to that a lot. Like, I feel like it, it definitely took me at least five to 10 years because I knew even when I had my first, my second daughter, um, and I had given up booze for the pregnancy, you know, you gotta. Right. As you do. Right? I remember thinking like, I guess I could not go back to drinking after this and maybe I would feel better. And I yeah. didn't do that. And it was, it was amazing how I just slid back into my old habits. Um, totally. even after that, and I knew back then, and that was 13 years ago. So yeah, yep. it's definitely a long yep. process. And so, mm -hmm. um, how many, I mean, Give us a sense of what that looked like for you. This quitting drinking. These, yeah, these these years of kind of of resetting and and all that. Uh -huh. There was this one incident I remember where um, we had gone to the pool with a bunch of my friends and their kids. You know, our husbands are at work all day, and we go to the pool with the kids. And my daughter had this. They call them a puddle jumpers, and it's like oh yeah, it's like water the wings. water wings but they like, it's like a life jacket and it buckles oh. in the back. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a great mom. Okay. I'm that mom that always has sunscreen, always has snacks, always has water bottle for my daughter mm. always. And, um, at the pool, I would always watch her, but that day, um, it was like someone's birthday or something dumb. Okay. And that little, that little life jacket on the inside of it, it says that it's like approved by the Coast Guard or something as yeah. like a qualified life preserver, mm -hmm. okay? And that fucking day, I let those words on that life jacket take care of my daughter the whole day at the pool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just kept drinking with my friends. Yeah. They just, it was just like someone had a tab going and the drinks just kept coming and I would kind of look around and get an eye on her like every 20 minutes, mm -hmm. but that's not good enough. Yeah. And, um, my aunt was there, my sober aunt, cause she had moved into my dad's house after my dad died. She moved into the house and she like helped clean it out. And she was amazing. She helped 
she was so amazing. Anyway, she was there. She was kind of with my daughter. And then it was a point when like, when the drinking gets going, she sort of like, she just leaves. And she didn't take my daughter. And I'm kind of glad she didn't because like, it was such a wake up call for me because I was just like, it still haunts me. And I still cry thinking about like, what could have happened that day? If like, you know, what if she like, what if she had asked a big kid to take off that, that life jacket so she could like go pee or something. And then she like, I would not have fucking known. I would not, I would have been drunk. And so that was this big wake up call. And I quit drinking after that for probably like 40 days, Wow, you know, and then it's that thing where and I see it on the app because I jump around to all the store, all, the, all the, the timelines, you know, where people mm-hmm. just start feeling good and they start feeling like their life is in order and they can have one glass of wine. It's a dinner party or it's 4th of July or there's always a reason. You yeah, know, you start like, to trick have- yourself thinking like, I, I made my point to myself. I can go back to that. I'll... I will get set back to that. I've now I'm going to approach this with the best intentions. It happens totally. so much. I'm in control now. I know yes. the stakes a thousand right. percent. And so it was like this thing where I was like, I'm going to have one glass of wine. And I called my aunt, my sober aunt, who was just, she's real chill. But when you get sober, she starts cheerleading you. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> we tend to, right? <laughs> Don't we? And so she, uh, I told her that I had one glass of wine and she goes, Oh, you're off to the races. Oh, wow. She goes, that's what we call it. That's what we call it. You're off to the races. Mm. And I was, I was, I went right back, you know? And so for a good 10 years, I have quit for 30 days mm-hmm. here and there. And also, do you know, throughout my pregnancies, but also like I was in Belgium and Germany for one like month basically during one of my pregnancies and like it was okay to drink like a little bit of Kolsch there and I did Mm -hmm. and like I'm gonna be honest like I read the articles I dug 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 through the internet for those articles about how it's okay to drink a little bit yeah yeah that one Mm -hmm. glass of wine won't really hurt the fetus I I found those fucking articles I I Confirmation bias. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I had one beer, you know, with dinner, like Mm -hmm. probably twice a week for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've been, I've been quitting drinking and, um, finally this time, um, here, let's just get to the end of my thing here. I want to ask you though. Um, so uh, because I felt this way, I'm curious if you felt this way, kind of those, those, practicing sobriety moments like where we can get to 30 days or whatever that almost kind of feeds this um false notion that you don't have a problem right like because you did that it's like oh I don't have a problem I could stop and I could do that because I feel like that was one of the biggest hurdles for me was in assessing whether or not I had a problem whatever that even means anymore right well, if you have well, to ask, then there's your answer. Right? Yes. Isn't that what true. we all do? We go, well, do I really have a problem? Am I really an alcoholic? Well, right. And line. there's so much energy wrapped up in that. That's kind of what I ended up arriving to was like, God, who cares if I have a problem anymore? 
this is a fucking waste of mental energy. But that was always that, like getting to the 30 days, I could be like, oh, well, I don't have a problem. I just did 30 fucking days sober, you know? I can stop anytime I want. I wonder if, you I want. If, if that was a conscious thing for you. Did you feel like that was something that kind of undermined things that you would think, yeah, I got this. I, I sobered up. I'm good. Yeah, and yes, and, you know, I never really put any effort into thinking about removing alcohol from my life. Mm-hmm. I sort of said, I need to take a break. My daughter could have died. It was a fine. The day was fine. Yeah, like, I it need was to fine. slow down. She didn't even get sunburned. <laughs> she didn't even get sunburned that day, but she could have fucking drowned. So mm-hmm. I thought, I better, I better slow down. But I always sort of had that back door. Like, well, I, I will get to go back to my, my best friend alcohol yeah. eventually. And so you can do 30 days of anything. If mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that, because I mean, come on, haven't we all like given up like cake and carbs before we go <laughs> for 30 days before vacation so we can mm-hmm. like look good in a swimsuit? Like uh, I could talk about that for about eight fucking hours, <laughs> but it's so, like, you always know it'll be there waiting for you when you're done with all this self-discipline. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's not really a lifestyle change. It's more like a diet fad sort of temporary fix kind of a thing mm-hmm. and it's a whole different animal to just to to truly change you know and I think I think totally. like that whole that whole false notion you get like well I've changed in 30 days you know yeah. definitely yeah. tricky so let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into uh what you were going to talk about next okay so we are back and let's see where were we I think, I think it was time to take all the pins out of the wall, yes, tie everything up, up with a nice, neat bow, <laughs> and maybe if there's any tangential topics, we can, like, put them on their Good own little of. side dish. Yeah. So, um, just to kind of tie it up with a bow, um, the marriage therapist taught me about codependency which is something I find again and again and again goes hand in hand with alcohol. And that has been for me a really profound um, discovery in my path. And it's like, it just putting those things together and finding those answers and like having something tangible to sort of like make decisions about and respond in ways has really helped me like get a handle on my on the why I drink and how I drink and who I was as a drinker. I never really thought about it before but it I mean I have kind of on the side but I never would have put that label on it but you mean like yes I know what codependency is but you're talking about like codependency in your marriage or codependency in drinking or both or all, all in a big swirling bundle of amazingness. Yeah. So I always, I used to think that codependency was that thing where you were like so insecure. You always needed somebody around yeah, that person mm-hmm. with you to like mm-hmm. inflate you. But actually codependency is that resentment that begins to grow when you realize when you just constantly are thinking about how much you do for everyone else, and how they don't even notice, and nobody reciprocates for you, how you are the invisible Cinderella, and Mm -hmm. nobody does anything for you, and that was a place I had 
I was beginning to take up space. I was beginning to really live there. And I watched my mom do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In her marriage, I watched my mom do it and I watched it ruin everything. And so, um, it's that thing where it's about controlling other people and people Mm -hmm. always go, I'm not manipulative. I'm not trying to control other people. And I absolutely would say I'm not manipulative. I'm not trying to control other people, but the marriage therapist says, so Sarah, when you, um, when you make sure there's a hot dinner ready for your husband, when he gets home and you make sure that all the things he likes to be tidied up at the day are tidied up. And, you know, when he goes to change the baby's diaper, you make sure that everything is neatly stacked right there, ready for him to use. Mm -hmm. That's you. You're being controlling because you're trying to control his emotions. You're afraid of him feeling frustrated or angry at things not being the way he likes it. And so what you do is you compensate and you go and you're basically scurrying around in ahead of someone else and you're laying all the bricks in the path. Just so. And what you're doing is you're controlling the way that they see you mm-hmm. and you're controlling their emotions so that it works for you. Because somewhere along in my, pro- in my programming, I became really afraid of anger. I, I just, I shudder at anger and I, I feel like I should have done something different to prevent this. Mm-hmm. Or I need to jump in right now and make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And the marriage therapist, you know, I drug my husband in that marriage therapy office. Like he's disconnected from me. He's not supporting me with the baby. He's not being a fucking friend to me right now. I need a friend. Mm-hmm. And the marriage, and I thought it was all him. Fix him. Fix this. I do everything. <laughs> and the marriage therapist was sort of like, well, Sarah. Uh, it's not really your responsibility whether or not he gets frustrated about, you know, what dishes are in the sink. That's mm-hmm. his problem. Mm-hmm. It's not really your responsibility to make sure that the kids' toys are off the stairs. That's what kids do. That's the sound of family. It's not your responsibility to make sure the baby doesn't cry. That's his problem. That's on him. And so drawing that line where I go, this is my responsibility and that is your responsibility. And when he said, you need to let Todd be responsible for his feelings. Holy shit, that blew me away. (laughs) I took responsibility. I was taking responsibility for everyone's feelings and I was drinking about it because that was the only thing I had for me. Mm -hmm. So that was like part of the light is like that place where the marriage therapist was able to draw a circle around me and say, this is yours. Okay. You only have to worry about what's in here. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's over there. That's what they have to worry about. Okay. So you just do that. And inside that circle was where I decided that I could quit drinking kind of. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm, yeah, it is amazing to me, the therapy process. I just joined when I sobered up. It was my first time in therapy and the self-discovery that's one of the best things that I ever heard on I am sober was somebody say 
recovery and stopping drinking is about so much more than the cessation of consuming alcohol. And it's really true. And a thousand uh, percent, mm -hmm. a thousand percent, because you have to cut your addiction for um, resentment mm -hmm. and anger and escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that's, the reason you drink is what you have to look at. Right. So true. So, um, so here's the thing. I'm still learning about taking up my own space mm -hmm. and allowing others to sort of take up their space. And in this house, I've been in this house now for three years, and um, I've moved some furniture. I haven't painted, but I've, mm -hmm. I've moved some things around to make it fit my life because I'm the one living my life in here. I can't be living with a ghost and living mm -hmm. her life and trying to fit into her shoes, you know? Of and so course. that was like, that was, that was like a hard one. Um, so I'm learning about taking up my own space. I'm learning about, um, how to drop the perfectionism because it's not a badge of honor. People are like, Oh, I'm a perfectionist. I'm like, <laughs> you need to get some fucking help. It's not. <laughs> I know it's true. There's so many <laughs> layers upon layers of things, you know, and shame and yeah. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, I, I just can't help it. I'm a workaholic. I'm like, you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Right, because those patterns that we engage in create stressors and create needs to cope and escape that are almost unrecognizable to us while we're in that active drinking state. And we can't see that, you know, that it's about something more than that. That's why it's, it's so complex and so nuanced and you really don't even get a full grasp of it till you get at least like kind of to that 30 to 90 day mark. Even I feel like I had totally, you know, the things that I learned didn't even occur to me till 90 days at least, you know, totally. so if anybody listening to this is thinking about quitting drinking at all or trying, you know, sobering up for any duration, I would definitely recommend at least, at least, 90 days to get a real yeah. sense of whether or not like what can actually change like 30 yeah. days isn't even really enough which scares the shit out of some people right because it's like yeah. just the idea of getting to 30 days anyway I digress oh yeah I used to <laughs> I used to freak out about 30 hours right yeah right like, so I, I think you're right and on that as alcoholics we lie to ourselves so much that we begin to believe it. Because when you said those, those problems, those patterns and those coping mechanisms, you know, you, they be, they're undetectable to you. Well, to me, the first thing was making sure they were undetectable to others. Yeah, wow. That's and so, so true. and it, whether it like was if, like, if nobody drinking can see it, more, it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. And making sure nobody, so if sometimes it was like having another drink, like after the kids went to bed or whatever. And sometimes it was, um, working and reworking and working and reworking something for work or, you know, the cupcakes for the bake sale at school or the letter for the, you know, the letter recommendation, whatever, 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 like perfectionism, <laughs> the dinner, the dinner. Oh my God. I used to make these gourmet dinners, 
with garnishes and different little salads, just mm-hmm. I, I'd outdo myself. Um, but, but we first want to make sure that it's undetectable to others. And we get so good at that, that we yeah. make sure it's undetectable to us too. Mm-hmm. And I think we, I think as addicts, we, we lie to ourselves so well, so yeah. much. And I feel like at that 90 day mark, like what you're saying, like, that's one of the things that, that you actually start to pull the curtain on is all the lies that are stacked up that you told to yourself that um, you need to untangle now. Yeah, that's true. I feel like I'm still looking behind the curtain. <laughs> There's still sure. shit behind that curtain that pokes out every so often. It's like the crypt keeper, like, you haven't gotten to me yet. Uh, totally totally (laughs) totally so I'm like I'm learning about the perfectionism I'm learning about what's my responsibility and what's not and um in gosh that thing you said about the crypt keeper like it's so true though I looked like the crypt keeper when I was hung over my face oh I don't know how much different you look now than because this is the first time, by the way, for those listening, Sarah's absolutely cute and adorable. And she has all these, she's got the sleeve of amazing art tattoo. Yeah, I do. It's super cool. If they let me tell my story on the Zoom meeting, I usually go to the Wednesday day, the Wednesday nap time meeting. Oh, okay. And I was going to do a tattoo tour for the, um, and I'll let, here's a fun fact. Yeah. Maybe this is like acting out behavior, <laughs> but I didn't get started. I didn't start getting tattoos till I got sober. Oh, that, you know, maybe it's, um, your way of documenting some of these emotions, but you're just documenting them on your skin is kind of like a, I've seen that with some people in recovery who tattoo themselves tattoo themselves with different meaningful things and I think it's cool no it's not really that meaningful some of it kind of is but like here's the thing is like I've always wanted to have tattoos I've always wanted to be that like bad bitch in a leather jacket but I was a Catholic school but I was a Catholic school teacher like Mm -hmm. I couldn't have like tattoos you know while I'm like leaving the kids to chapel um (laughs) side note side note I do have spirituality I was raised Catholic but I'm, my higher power is kind of like the universe and yeah, like my, my kids' souls. Mm-hmm, so I, mm-hmm. I talk about the Catholic school thing and I learned a lot as a teacher. I, I learned more than I ever learned as a cradle Catholic. <laughs> I didn't know shit. They just like put you in, you know, but when you're a teacher, you have to teach it so you know about what, you know, transubstantiation is. Anyway, I was never able to do tattoos because I was always so busy being the person, the fine upstanding citizen that everybody kind of needed me to be. Yeah. And then I got sober and I was able to inhabit my own skin. Yeah. And I was really able to go, I am going to be myself wherever I am. Here's the other thing. I'm 40. Okay. So whatever's going to stretch or sag or whatever already has. (laughs) And I work for myself. So I don't, I'm not really that concerned about like what's going to look like in a job interview. I don't think I'm ever going to have another job interview in the rest of my life. So I kind of was able to reach this point where I could just put both middle fingers up in the air and be like, I'm going to finally be that bad bitch that I always wanted to be. 
And so you give yourself permission got, to be who you are in recovery, yeah. I think, too. Oh, nice. This, I love it. The, the first tattoo I got is this. Really it's cool. a Black Widow spider. Nice. Oh, I plug in. <laughs> um, so tattoos. Um, I feel I just keep feeling like I need to tie it up. I feel like I'm just yeah, yammering go ahead. on. No, I just no. feel like I'm like, so then I'll in let, eighth I'll grade. Let your school teacher, um, uh, not OCDs, but. Um, right. You know. <laughs> well, I just feel like we just keep going on these tangents and then yeah, I'm like, no, tell, do I need to tie this up? No, um, tell me real quick, you, I'm going to tell you the tell story me your about ideal the spider tie up, you know? Oh yeah, that's very cool. I love it. Um, really cool. My ideal tie up is going to be uh, the gifts of what sobriety means to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. But before I do it, I'm going to tell you about the spider tattoo. I have a black widow on my wrist and I know it makes me look like such a bad bitch. Like a black widow on my wrist. Like it shows you are a bad everything. Bitch, though. That's, I got to <laughs> interject that people do not realize. I mean, I, I have to make the assumption that anybody listening to this is either struggling in recovery, trying to reconcile their relationship with alcohol or and or other and themselves yeah or and or they're they're attempting recovery or have achieved recovery on some level but we are bad yeah. bitches male female oh, for any sure. gender oh yeah it is oh, it yeah. is a real deal this this journey oh a thousand percent like i i i joke about that i'm a bad bitch because i know i know that i am <laughs> mm -hmm. i i know that i am but this black widow fighter this is because when I taught first grade, a black widow spider was my class pet. Oh, really? I would, <laughs> uh huh. I, I, the black widows, they kind of come into your house. And so, first of all, I love spiders. I love all spiders. Oh, I used to hate them, but I was taught to love them by a mentor that um, taught me how to be a teacher, how to be a good teacher. He loved spiders and everything was spider, spider, spiders. And I fell in love with them. So, this black widow. Every fall, they kind of make their way into your house. Like I found one, like kind of in my like in my other house, like between like my shower curtain, like the plastic one and like the fabric one. There's like a black widow spider right there. So you kind of find them in your house. So what I do is, I um, what I do is you is how you do it. You you put a cup over it, boop, and then you slide a piece of paper under that cup, and then you have one. Okay. And so I would use wash it like I would. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a story about empathy. Mm -hmm. This is a story about karma. Okay. I don't kill spiders because spiders are creepy and spiders could kill me. But guess what? If I give them good vibes out of the universe, I'm cool with them energetically. And when I come in contact with them, I'm like, yo, bro, like, we're cool, remember? <laughs> You're not I can't squash a spider. I can't I cannot kill a spider. I cannot kill a spider. And if oh, my husband wow. kills one, I can't watch it and I I can't I I damn. So what you do is you I would catch the black widow and I would have like a plastic peanut butter jar. Okay, and then a piece of like tool, like that netting, you know, under dresses. You take a piece of tool, you put it over the top, and then you put like a jar, a ring lid over it. Okay, so it's in this plastic jar and the, the top is this net so it can breathe. You put like a stick in there. Um, and then I bring it to my classroom of first graders. I taught first grade. And the spider was always named Betsy. It was a different one every year. I let it go at the end of the year, at the end of the winter, okay? 
And I'd go to Petco once a week and I'd get it a cricket. And um, it, it was beautiful. The kids would love to watch it go and kill the cricket and then wrap it up. And then it would wait a couple hours for the guts to turn to goo and then it would go over and it would drink it like a smoothie and the kids would learn. But the reason I did it was A, because I love spiders, but B, because this teaches them empathy, okay? Mm -hmm. Because this is a scary thing and it could kill you, <laughs> but it needs love and compassion and light and water and food just the way you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just the way you do. And when you have six-year-olds, you know, their brain is just such a, such beautiful light. It's, there's so much light that comes from those kids. And I'm watching my class, right? My class that I taught, grad, a lot of them are graduating and this is the years, you know? And so I would teach them that like black widow spiders are like probably the most venomous spider in the world. I'm the only one that handles them. You know, it's a plastic jar. The kids could pick it up. I mean, I would just like put it in my purse and like ride the bus. Like I would, <laughs> I would let it sleep in my bed if I had to. Like it's totally fine. Yeah. But this spider, this is because it was my class pet when I was a Catholic school teacher, which is like totally wow. the opposite of what someone might think of someone with a black widow, you know, tattoo. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's about empathy and compassion. It's about seeing something that maybe you're afraid of, but it's a beautiful thing. And yeah. it, it has needs and we can help it. That's and really it's happier. Cool. It's happier because of what, what we've been able to give it. And so mm -hmm. that's my spider tattoo story. And you know, what's the craziest thing. I just, this is so crazy. I would have them and like, I would keep it like on the back of my toilet. I usually probably had one at home too. Cause it's like, mm -hmm. if you're going to buy one cricket, it's not going to break the bank <laughs> to buy another cricket. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I would have it on the back of my toilet at home. And, um, I would like light a candle, you know, uh -huh. and just set it next to it. Okay, you would like light a candle and then the things in the in the jar. And the thing would just like go up to the side of the jar and just like be transfixed. <laughs> by oh, the wow. And I always thought about how like when it would go back to its life after I would let it go, how it would like tell all the other spiders like, you guys, I saw the craziest shit. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I have a whole different perspective on spiders now. Totally different in a good they're way. So important. They're so important. And if you're a gardener, which I am not, I have a black thumb, but if you're a gardener, like spiders are so important. They're so important for you. And on, there was a few good years where the spider, this is when I knew I was like really doing well. The spider would lay an egg sack and hatch oh, yeah. baby black widows yeah. in my classroom. And it was, cool. it was miraculous to watch. That's All cool. Right. So what I'm going to do now, so that maybe you can have the rest of your day back, I'm going to just give this much on what so far I've gotten, what sobriety means to me. Yeah. And then I kind of want to read this letter to my brother. And yeah. So we could like take a break. Yeah. We'll take a quick its own thing. Yeah. Or do you want to, yeah, let's take a quick pause. So let's hear Okay, it. before we move on, I just want to say that I really am truly like honored to be a part of this. And I do, I kind of fangirl out a little bit, like even when Drifter comments on my post, because he has become, he just decided he would do this 
he said, oh, I'm going to do a podcast. And he's lifting up these people in the community. And I don't think that this is something that he's like uh, done professionally or has a big breadth and depth of background in. He just decided to do it and he showed up. And to me, that's like so inspiring is to dare to be imperfect and just show up, figure it out because he has created something gorgeous. And I can't, I still can't believe I'm on it. Oh yeah, no, it's great. I think it's, um, he loves to say it restores his soul. And I think, you know, as you get along into this recovery process, I don't think that I would have come as far as I have, if it wouldn't be for like trying to even reach back out to people that have less time than me or struggling more than me and helping them like helping others is one of the main ways to stay sober. It feels like anyway. Totally. Isn't it though? Mm -hmm. It's like you, you kind of have this thing where someone has filled up your cup Mm -hmm. and the best you can do is to make sure that someone else's cup is filled up because you know, best, you know, so well, what it feels like to walk around there going, I don't have a connection to myself. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so lost. And you go, you're not lost. This is your place. We are your people. Yeah. Another thing, and I don't know if you feel this way as well, but I'm guessing perhaps, but is that, you know, one thing I realized earlier is that if I slip, now I'm viewing it as like potential slips or potential quote unquote failures I may make could potentially have a ripple effect on others. So I kind of view my sobriety as a collective sobriety with others. Like the mm-hmm. more that I stay sober, you know, if I if I cave, that could trigger five other people to cave. Who knows? Because there have been people who have who have slipped and it's been triggering to me and you know, it's whatever on them. I don't blame them for whatever circumstance made them vulnerable and that choice that they make because relapsing is part of recovery and there should be no shame in that whatsoever. How, with that said, I find that the collective strength in this process to be really empowering. And that just personally motivates me to keep going whenever I think, you know what, me sticking with this, you know, is going to help others stick with us. I don't know. I think it's crazy that you say that the way you said collective sobriety. I think that's, that's really a profound thought, isn't it? That, that really is. That's really bright and beautiful. It's crazy because what? Oh, there's some quote about, Oh, and I can't remember it. Right. When you conjure a quote that you half remember and then you can't mm-hmm. deliver, it's the most mm-hmm. frustrating thing. It's something about, you know, we're all stronger, you know, uh, together than we are alone. And, and yeah, I think that's true for certain. It feels, it feels very much like we're yeah. in this together. Totally. Totally. Um, you know, there's been some people kind of, just in my like circle, you know, you just sort of find a circle in the, in the app sort of, um, who have reset and there's so much love and compassion and support for them. And I have so much love and compassion and support for those people. I, I told one of them, I said, I think I speak for everybody when I say we respect you just as much as we did the day before. You are yeah. not different to us. You're, maybe you're different to yourself, but you're not different to us. I was there with you. I saw you. You still have all those days. I wa- watched all that growth. That is not gone now. But yeah. I don't have that compassion for myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I slip, 
I'm back to the bottom of a well. What a waste, you know? That's I know it. And there's another thing too about sobriety that I kind of want to mention because I'm coming up on my one year. It's been a pandemic, okay? So we're all in our houses. We're all kind of in our own little thing, but not a lot of people know that I'm sober because um, I'm going to just say it. I felt sort of like shameful quitting drinking. I felt yeah. like I, it was this dirty secret of mine. And it felt in this society, they really help you think that you are going against the grain and you have failed. You yeah. have wasted a lifetime of drinking in 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you blew your wad like what Augustine Burroughs said in dry, you blew your wad (laughs) and you can't handle it. You have a problem. You hit some probably despicable rock bottom. And now you don't get to participate in this fun thing that everyone gets to do. And that's how I felt in the early, very beginning. Isn't that the worst that we have that uh, stigma that we have to deal with that the, if we start announcing it and, it's so fucked really that our, that we have to navigate that, that sort of um, definition and and perception that that's who we are. Instead, it can't just be, how come it can't just be, you know what? It's a better healthy choice. Meh. (laughs) You know, like, why does it have to be? Oh my God, good for you. Oh, you had a problem. Oh, yeah. Something real bad must have happened. Because if you're still drinking, (laughs) you're fine. If you're yeah, still drinking, like, you can handle it because oh, you're still doing it. Blown. But if you're not doing it, you can't handle it. I know. It's, it's so bad. warped. But the good thing is, and I think you might agree, when you go sober, even though you have to worry about that perception, even though that perception is very real, you kind of start to not care as much in a way because or and you then have to there's let that. that go. Yeah, because you know the truth. And when we because what you truth, do is you begin, yeah. you begin, yeah, you learn the truth and you begin to, for me, just inhabit your own skin and go, because oh, I spent a lot of time scurrying around, making sure everybody else was happy so that I could like take care of myself at the end of the day. And not just as a mother, like just even as a person, like as a coworker, as a wife, like just as a friend even. And mm-hmm. I kind of decided in sobriety, I was able to just sort of like, really grow out and take up the space that I take up unapologetically. And so now I'm coming up on my one year and I'm like unapologetic. And it's also like not my fucking problem. Like if you're so into your drinking that you think I have a problem because it's like, okay, (laughs) I don't care what, yeah, like I don't care. And that's what empowering, of right? That's so amazing to feel like that. Like, who cares what you think? You know, oh, I th- oh. I talked about that to somebody else on the um, in the group on a Zoom. She said, "You know what? If people want to call me an alcoholic, fine. Call me an alcoholic. Call, call me a turnip if you want. Like, I know who mm-hmm. I am. You know, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. true. It's totally true. And so, like, I don't. I I'm in my own skin, the way that, the way that, um, all the pills and the therapy and the walks and all the things I was supposed to be doing in order to find myself, like this thing was the thing that worked. 
Yeah. And I'm not saying that like the pills and stuff don't work for people because I'm sure for a lot of people they do. And for me, they probably did help me just like stop envisioning my baby underwater. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But they, this is the thing that actually brought me to myself, mm-hmm. which brought me to my marriage yeah. because I was hollowing myself out so that I could try to be what everybody needed me to be. Right. Be, he wanted me to show up. And it's like, as soon as I started, like, uh, just sort of taking a little bit of space and time and energy for myself and drawing some lines, he sort of, you know, people treat you the way you treat yourself. Yeah. And I, in sobriety was a place where I figured out who I was and how to treat myself and how much respect I deserve from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing, that's the thing I'll never give up about sobriety. And I think it's so tempting to drink. I could think of a thousand reasons to drink. I love a margarita on a sunny patio, but none of that is worth this unshakable feeling of being truly myself and knowing myself and knowing that I am someone I can look up to and I am someone I can count on and someone my kids can count on. And there's, there's no cocktail or party or event or fancy bottle of champagne that, that is ever going to be worth that, even close. Yeah, that is the truth right there. So what that's is- kind of, that's like it, basically. I mean, what? Oh, no, I was going to ask as well if you felt like you had time to share your brother's letter. Or the letter. Yeah, I totally do. I really want to share it because I kind of want to have it like, um, did this, has he ever, does he, has he read this that you know? Okay. So it wasn't spoilery or should I have even said it was to your brother? Now I'm like, Oh, no, no, because (laughs) I've talked about it on the app. I've talked about it a bunch of times and I I decided to kind of quit talking about it listening to this and, or he might, I don't know. I hope he does. I hope he does. I hope he does. So sobriety for me is what I just said. Like I'm present. I'm wholehearted. I'm steady on my feet. I'm calm and confident. I'm self-assured. I am myself wherever I go and others adjust. That's Brene Brown. That's not me. Um, And I always say kind of on the app that I see sobriety as this like VIP room. I have like this much formal training in fashion. It's like Mm -hmm. six inches. (laughs) Um, And I see sobriety as this like VIP room, this first class cabin that we all get to be in like these beaded gowns and tuxedos. And we have a nameplate. My aunt says, I don't want to give up my spot, babe. I don't want to give up my spot. And so I feel like we are, it's the ultimate fashion statement for me. It's the ultimate in like being ahead of the trend, you know, Mm -hmm. like in fashion, there's Mm -hmm. trends and it's like, it's the ultimate, like, rebellious trend set where you're not doing what all the others do you know it's that very next level of like class and it's honor I really do think it is and I just someone said it's the ultimate form of rebellion and I fucking love that I just love that yeah there's something really cool about not going against what everybody else is just mindlessly sucking back booze all the time it's great to feel like I don't need that you know yeah yeah so 
once I began to start feeling these feelings and especially the ones I just talked about, about being like wholeheartedly fully yourself and connected to yourself and being someone you look up to all I could, every time I felt a miracle of sobriety, I would also see my brother and see like, he could be doing this. Mm. It just feels like you're on this vacation and you're like, I wish you were here. I wish yeah. you were here. And so my brother is, you know, raised by my parents, big drinker, mm-hmm. Went to, went to CU Boulder, big, same school that I went to, big drinking. And he's like in his thirties, but he still kind of parties like he's 23. Like he's still, he doesn't have kids yet. He just got married, but like, I just don't know if like life has like really forced him to like not have to drink and he's a vocalist. Okay. So Mm -hmm. he's he's in front of people. He's with the band, you know, he's at events. He's getting home at one o'clock in the morning. He doesn't have Mm. to be anywhere till three the next day. I mean, it just, it's that rock and roll lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. I think he's changing now because he's got a new job, but here's the other thing is like, I am sober now. So I'm the sobriety fairy. I'm perfect. I get to ride (laughs) around on this high horse. (laughs) Only with us. I only say that with us. Yeah, I know. It's hard not to be up there. (laughs) It's so hard. And I don't get to wave my sobriety wand in anyone's face. Okay. Because nobody waved theirs in my face. And I arrived at it when I was ready. And no amount of anyone's sobriety. My uncle who's been sober for 20 years. My aunt who's 15 years sober now. My father who I watched die. None of that was going to get me sober until I was ready to go. You know what? No more. That's the truth. So that's the thing, but with my brother and with the experience of our father and what I've seen, the miracles I've seen, I do feel like I get to wave it in his face once. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I just couldn't shake this feeling of all the beauty and joy and peace and, you know, colors that I'm seeing in sobriety. I just couldn't shake wishing he were here. And so I went to go visit my marriage therapist. And I said, I want to see you as an addiction counselor now. I want to talk to my brother about his drinking. Put on your hat, switch hats. Uh And he's so cool. He's such a badass dude. And, uh, he said, and I said, what do I say? What do I not say? You know, how do, how, how do you do this? Cause I know he does mm-hmm. it, you know, all the time. And so, um, he kind of just said, focus on yourself, you know, don't be waving your finger in anybody's face. And so I wrote this letter and then I paid him again for another session. I said, here's what I wrote. Help me polish it up because I, I do as a teacher, as a professional, I do think that being able to represent yourself in writing is the most important thing. Kids. Okay. Yeah. Everybody. If you can represent yourself in writing, you can pretty much get anything you want in life. <laughs> that, that, that's the last of that. So I wrote this letter. Um, my plan was to ask my brother to do Sober May with me. And then when he slips up or fails on Sober May, send him this letter. Okay. I, so he has not seen this letter. I wrote wow. it a couple, month, a couple months ago um, because he said he'd do Sober May. And, um, he did, I think he slipped up. He, he confessed that he did slip up, but we've sort of been having this conversation with this other friend, his best drinking buddy, who's been sober for three years now. All the cool kids are doing it. Yeah. We've been in this text group, the three of us. Um, and he's just talking about how great it feels to be sober, but (laughs) 
I think it's that thing where he's got that back door where it's like, mm. yeah, it's fun. I could totally three days. I feel fantastic. But uh, you bet your bottom dollar I'll be at that 4th of July <laughs> barbecue. You know, like he, yeah, he can like talk about how easy it is because I think, I don't think he's making a lifestyle choice. Yeah. All right, enough setup. I'm going to read this letter. Yeah. I want to hear it. Do you have I any read, comments, I questions, or concerns before I read it? Oh, no. Go for it. Yeah. All right. All right. This, I've kind of updated it slightly since what I posted. And I couldn't, <laughs> this letter exceeds a word limit for a post on the app. So I haven't really posted it yet. But, and I also was like, do I really want to be bugging everybody with like my problem about someone else's drinking, which is like, you're supposed to stay in your own lane, you know? Yeah. So, but I already said, I get one person, you know, I get yeah. one person. So brother, I have decided I need to share these feelings because you mean the very most to me. Alcohol's relationship with you causes me anguish. I spend time and energy worrying about the way alcohol damages your future and your mental health. I re-experience the trauma of losing dad so early in his life and being powerless to watch his rapid decline. I need to talk to other people about my worry for you. I spend a lot of time thinking about the way alcohol affects your potential. I feel sad and afraid. I feel stress and even anger. I feel anxious because I'm afraid alcohol is gaining control. We both know this is a family disease. The cards are stacked against us. It's progressive. It only gets worse. And it will not let up until you are dead, period. It's time to hold alcohol accountable for what it has taken from our family and what it wants to take from you. Alcohol prevents us from having an honest relationship. On the many nights I lay awake thinking about how much I worry for you, I finally asked myself, why haven't you told him? What is it worth to you? And will it be easier if you wait? My answers, I haven't told you because I'm afraid you'll shut me out. It's worth everything to me. It's your life. And it will not get easier. In fact, it will get much harder, I guarantee. I want all the good things for you. I want a relationship of honesty and rich purpose. I want you at my daughter's wedding. I have begun the path to sobriety, and it is gratifying and sometimes challenging. It brings me to places where I face the grief of missing dad and some hard facts about my past and my mental health. But ultimately, it feels good to be healing for real. There are so many times I wish you were here to be able to help me. There are things that you understand better than anyone. I believe there are miracles on the other side. And the scariest, point, the scariest part is this moment right here. I've never seen anyone drink themselves happy, successful, smart, or rich, or grateful. I can personally attest that drinking alcohol is like pouring gasoline on anxiety. You are at a pivotal place in your life. You don't have, you don't have to hit a rock bottom to find yourself, just a crossroads. Sobriety is the ultimate level up for creativity, credibility, professionalism, and accountability. I can see your pain. I can see the anxiety and the guilt. I can see all the shame you carry. I can see that cloud that dims your shine. I want so much to remove that pain. It hurts me to see you suffer. It hurts for me to see your talent, skill, and credibility 
chipped away by this thing that is not really who you are. We both, we both watched dad suffer this internal battle. I do not want to do it again with you. This, this is the time. This is the part of the story where we could have saved dad. This is the place to beat this thing while you still can. It is easier now than it will ever be. You are not weak. It is not your willpower or character in question here. This is not your fault. You have been snared in a trap. You can escape this hungry ghost. All I want is the very best relationship with you. You are the most important person to me. I have no expectations. This isn't about me. I will always leave a light on for you. So I ask you, how does this movie end? So much love, Sarah. P.S. The most fundamental harm we can do is to remain ignorant by not having the courage and respect to really look at ourselves honestly and gently. Emma Chodron. Wow. I just love that letter for so many reasons. I was scribbling down a couple of my favorite things as you were writing because it just so beautifully illustrates and touches on the lows, the highs, the potential for bad, for good. And that's really like all the things you have to start considering or you want, you do start considering when you take all this in. And I think I'll be really curious to, to hear from you down the road, whether he did listen to it and what his reaction, but my reaction is just, wow. And I think that whole thing you said about it's time to hold account alcohol accountable, that is just so powerful. And that's something that we forget that this substance is really responsible for some has been responsible for for countless people's pain for years at a time and the other thing yep. you said i can see the cloud that dims your shine that is so true it feels like alcohol just just kind of mutes everything around mm -hmm. you and um, not just the way you perceive it but you know your potential um, you know, I, I can look at pictures of myself back when I was consuming alcohol and it's like dead eyes. It's like I'm smiling, but it's, it's all drunken. It's like I have no soul behind my eyes. And I really did feel like when I think back to those years of heavy drinking, it was like I was drifting through this fog and, and just this just I was just existing I wasn't living and when we and when we do arrive to this um, amazing spot of sobriety it's so hard because we want so much for other you get it it's like you're awake for the first time in many years and you just want to awaken other people you want other people to see what you see and it's just I just love that I'm so and I'm curious if you ever thought while you were writing that, maybe not then, or if you think now rereading it, how much or if any of that letter do you think was to yourself at all? Right. I mean, you know? it, it came, it came from a place that I know. Yeah. So right? it was definitely like 
totally like to myself, like from that place that I know Mm -hmm. so well. And really quick, just to um, touch on the first thing you said to hold alcohol accountable. Um, The addiction counselor said, what you want to do here, the way that you're going to, the only way you're going to do this is if you separate the addict from the substance, because there's so much guilt and shame tangled up in this dependency. And you need to help them see that they are not the damage. The damage is this thing, this intruder that has taken up residence. And what you need to let them see is that that is the, the threat and they are safe to, you know, flee from it. And so I tried really hard to like make it about the alcohol and not about his decisions and his choices and his life style. You know, it's like, this is this thing that has robbed from our family. My father was 63 for fuck's sake. You know, like it, what do you think you, how far do you think you can run? You know? And so I'm just really glad I got to share it. And I actually, I think I am going to send it because I'm afraid. I I am afraid. I'm afraid he's going to shut me out. And he just did a whole month sober. And I think it's time for me to just come clean because you tiptoe around people. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking I'm just gonna. I bought him the This Naked Mind book. Yeah. I'm just gonna put it in, put it in a box, and just go. Yeah, and that's all you can you. do, right? Like, so there's a great. Um, I just found this book not that long ago, and I'll be. I don't know if you've uh, read it in your stack of Quitlet that we all arm ourselves with in this process. Love it. There's a New Zealand author named Lada Dan, and she's written a book called The Wine O'Clock Myth, and it came out, I think, like 2019. She's written a couple other recovery books, and she talks a lot about, like, she just, it's, it's a very, it's, all, it's not quite as um, feminist forward as Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman, but it does focus on all the advertising toward women, et cetera. Um, but one thing that she said that was really powerful, I heard uh, her talk about on a podcast was, you know, it was this analogy or anecdote about lighthouses and, you know, lighthouses just stand there. They don't go around the island trying to save ships. They just stand there and they shine their light. And, you know, I feel like in this recovery process as, as leaders, as experiencers, people as like testaments of sobriety is amazing, you know, that's all we can do is kind of shine our light, kind of be an example. And, and, you know, um, I think that letter is just amazing. And I think it just just, blew my mind. And it just just blew my mind. The lighthouse. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it takes the pressure off us, right? As well, because we can't save everyone. And, and we have Mm -hmm. people usually as drinkers in our families that struggle with these things and, and we can't, we can't necessarily save them and make choices for them. We gotta, we gotta let that go, but we can be uh, and a tremendous example. And, and, you know, but I think it's amazing that you wrote that. And I, I don't know your brother from Adam, but I hope I, I can't wait to hear how that helps. And even if nothing else, it'll be, it was a healing experience. I'm sure I would imagine for you. It was, but, it was. 
it was kind of keeping me up at night. It was, I was starting to kind of obsess about it. Yeah. And then I wrote this letter and like those feelings sort of like they went into this letter. Like I don't, I don't have to carry them around anymore. And the addiction counselor, he said two things kind of with that lighthouse. He said, he goes, so you get to write this letter and then you're done. Okay. You're sending a paper airplane after it leaves your fingers it leaves. You don't get to every time he calls you saying, how much are you drinking? You're not going to be that person, which I already knew I wasn't going to be. But you know, he says, you don't, if he wants to bring it up, great, but you don't need to bring it up. You don't need to say, Hey, did you read it? Would you, you don't do that. He goes, you are planting a seed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to happen overnight, just like any seed. And like any good farmer, you only get to do it about once a year, maybe twice a year. That's great. You get to do it by once a year. (laughs) And then he said, what you're doing now, he goes, for every alcoholic, it's a closed door. And all we can do is stand outside the door with the light on, big floodlight. Mm -hmm. He goes, and you just, every once in a while, that door will crack open. And your job is to just flood it with light. And he goes, what you're doing here is you're simply letting him know that you're turning on the light for him. That's and it's great... just like that lighthouse. It's just like that. Like I'm literally, I'm going to sit here right now. Okay. Arlene, and I'm going to draw. <laughs> I told you I have like five seconds of formal training and fashion illustration. I'm going to draw a lighthouse right now on this. Well, thank you for being a shining beacon of light as well. It's, I'm so glad to have talked to you. I can't wait to meet you. That is legit. And legit. And, I don't think people, people listen to this and are in our community from all over the world, but our state that we live in is so beautiful and <gasps> so gorgeous right now as well. Spring's finally mm-hmm. coming and the mountains are mm-hmm. amazing. So I'll be knocking on your door soon and like, where's that trail? Let's go. No, I seriously <laughs> mean it. I seriously Yeah. Somebody else from the app was like, hey, I think I might be in your area. We're going to go check out the Aspen Art Museum. And I was like, you should come and stay. I have so much space. Like, we have, like, a separate apartment, like, that was for my mother-in-law. I have a whole apartment in the house. And then I was like, that probably doesn't sound like very good boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will not infringe on your space in that way. No, I I have a whole apartment. I have a whole apartment. You're totally welcome. I'm just so glad that we got to talk and all these things have been amazing. And thank you so much for the time and sharing your story. And yeah, thank you. And thank you listeners for for SoberTownPodcast.com. Check it out. Yes. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Bye.